Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for Radical Jewish Views of God, Maimonides versus Spinoza. I also want to thank our co-host for today's program, Temple Emmanuel in Denver. And I would love to introduce today's guest speaker, Rabbi Micah Streifer. Micah Streifer is a rabbi, teacher, writer, and lifelong student who is known for his engaging style in the classroom and his ability to make Jewish texts and ideas come to life. Micah is the founder of La Sok, a virtual Beit Midrash, or house of study, that empowers liberal Jewish learners to deepen their connection with Judaism through study. He also serves Kol Ami, a reform congregation in the Toronto area, and hosts the popular seven-minute Torah podcast. Ordained a rabbi at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, Micah has served as a congregational rabbi for 16 years. He is currently pursuing a PhD in Jewish thought at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Rabbi, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, um, Alex. Thank you for that warm welcome. And thank you to all of me, to, to all of you for welcoming me to be to do a little bit of learning with you today. So um, as Alex said, my name is Micah Streifer. I'm a rabbi and I'm a, a teacher, but a learner. And I look forward to learning together with you today. Um, I run an organization that's not unlike this one where we also do virtual learning. And I find that it's absolutely extraordinary the ways that we can bring people together to study across the internet, across this virtual medium. So I'm really excited to be able to join all of you I'm coming to you today from Toronto, Ontario. So we're an international crowd because we cover at least two countries. Um, and, and again, thanks for, thanks for inviting me. I like to start any study session with a blessing for study. Um, here on my screen, if you'd like to join me in this blessing, I would welcome you to do so. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kidshanu b'mitzvotav, b'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, eternal source of the universe, whose commandments make us holy and who commands us to immerse, to engage ourselves in words of Torah. And this word, la'asok, you see it here in the Hebrew, here in the translation, transliteration, and then down here, the translation to immerse, to engage. When we study in Judaism, we don't just learn. We don't just talk about, talk about or study. We immerse ourselves. We engage ourselves. We try to find ourselves in the text. And that's actually the name of the organization that I run. It's called La Asok. And if I can, um, if I can just, you know, do a, a momentary shameless plug, the uh, website is laasok.org and I'll put it in the chat. And I'd love to have you check us out in case anybody's interested. So we're here today to talk about something that is so basic, so fundamental to Judaism, <clears throat> that how could there possibly be debate over it, except that there is debate over it. And the something is the oneness of God. If there's any one thing that Judaism teaches at its very core, it's that God is one. I mean, we all know the Shema, right? And yet the whole idea of God's oneness has spawned a debate over the course of the centuries that Jews have questioned and debated and discussed what it means. You all know the old saying that if you have two Jews, you have three opinions. 
we're going to prove that today. And we're going to take a look at two Jews, two very smart Jews, Maimonides and Spinoza, who have between them at least three opinions, if not far more, about what it means that God is one. So I want to start with a text that you all know, and it's the one that's right in front of you, the words of the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel, the Eternal is our God, the Eternal is one. So I want to ask you to parse this text with me um, and to, to help me to understand when we look at these six words, this short passage, what do we learn about God from this passage? Just these, these six words, what do they tell us? about God. And I would invite you either to put it into the chat, or if anybody wants, you can raise your hand and um, and unmute and, and, and share with us what you're thinking. What do the six words of the Shema teach about God? I see Bunny. Um, my understanding was that there were, there was more than one God at one time, or there was a different view of God between uh, I think the two tribes, I'm not the 12 tribes, but between maybe Judea and Israel, this is kind of what I'm vaguely remembering. And then they, they decided, the rabbis decided that both are the same. It's one God, not two. And also the, the surrounding tribes had many gods. Okay. So again, it was a response to the surrounding area where the people uh, were, you know, they they prayed to gods in nature and so on. So they were saying, no, there's not many gods. There's one God. Echad, right? There's one. So you have this response to an ancient world where there are multiple gods. Judaism comes along and says, no, Echad, there is only one. So one of the things that we learn from this passage is about is about quantity, right? There is only one God versus more than one God. Um, a couple of comments in the chat that I see, God is our God, Lauren says. So that's an additional piece of information, right? Besides quantity, there's a sense of ownership here that God somehow belongs to us and or we belong to God. Uh, I see no Trinity, which is also this you know statement of number. There's only one, not three. Our God is eternal. We learn about eternality from this statement as well. And that's specifically from the name of God, yod heh vav which is understood by some thinkers, some Jews, to refer to God's eternality, because what it actually means in Hebrew is was, is, and will be. In other words, God is the one that, is, that was, that is, and that will be. Um, Robin points out that listening is of, of primary importance here. Part of communication with God is about listening. And then Lauren also says that God is the God of the Jewish people, and there's only one God. I see, it looks like Keith has a hand up as well. Well, yes, actually, what, what I was going to mention was already mentioned uh, by a previous individual. In order to hear, we have to listen. And and and, and listening is an active skill. So we, all, we always have to be aware and and. Uh, and and listen and for our God. Great. For, for God to be in our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a statement of relationship, right? To listen that's true. Right. to one another is to be in relationship. So we learn from this passage a number of things. Oh, we have one more comment here and then I'll go on. And that's Thea. Go ahead, Thea. Real quickly, um, this is a mandate. 
this is Moses saying, listen up, you guys. Get it right. There's one God who's nameless because, because to me that means formless. Not not um not anthropomorphic in this sense. And the I will be in it, it's sort of like the answer that God gives Moses at the burning bush. I am what I will be. It's very similar. Moses is giving the people a mandate. Listen up, you guys. This is your God. This is your God forever. There is only one God. And if you, and if I leave you with nothing else, I leave you with this. Thank you. Yeah. So there's so much packed into these six words, right? I mean, we think it's simple. Hero Israel, the, the eternal is our God. The eternal is one, but it's not simple what the Shema says. Within the Shema, we have a statement of quantity. There's only one God. We have statements about the quality. What is God like? The eternality of God. We have statements of belonging. God is ours. We are God's. And also the notion of relationship that somebody brought up. That to hear, to listen, is to be in relationship with, with God. And so out of these six little words, the rabbis spun an entire prayer book. They spun an entire section of our service that's referred to as the Shema and its blessings. And the Shema and its blessings is a series of blessings. Those of you who go to synagogues probably know these blessings relatively well. This is the part that begins with the Baruch Hu and goes up through the beginning of the, um, the right before the, the Amidah. And it contains usually three to four blessings that express the ideas in this, um, in this, um, th- this one little sentence. God is one, God is ours, God is in relationship with us. And what do those blessings say? What are the blessings that we say surrounding the Shema? We talk about God as being the creator of the world. The Yotzer Or blessing, the first blessing before the Shema, which says that God created the world. That's the relationship, right? And God renews the cycles of creation daily. God is evident in the created world. We talk about God as being the revealer of Torah. That is to say, God wrote the Torah. God teaches us the laws of life. God uh, is a lawgiver. God is a commander. God can be found in Torah and mitzvot and morality. Again, this is an expression of the idea that God is our God, that God is in relationship with us. And finally, we talk about that God as redeemer. This is your micha mocha prayer, that God redeemed us from Egypt. God brought the slaves out. God does miracles. God will again redeem the world in the end of times by sending a Messiah or, you know, some kind of a messianic age at the end of times. All of these things are expressions of the Shema. God is one. God is ours. God is in a relationship with us. And when we repeat these words, which Jews have been doing, you know, every day, three times a day for the last 2000 years or so, we continually internalize this idea of God as Echad, God as one and in relationship with us. But there's a problem. The problem is that not all Jews believe these exact things. Not all Jews believe that God literally created the world. Not all Jews believe that God literally wrote the Torah. God, not all Jews believe that God literally will send a Messiah 
at the end of times. God, not all Jews believe that God has personal traits, that God is a being or a person out there, a person not in the sense of being a human, but of being a personal being with with a will and with choices and with um and who you know who chooses and writes and creates and things like that. And we're not the first in history to have questioned that. We're not the first in history who, to have looked at the prayer book and said, I'm not sure I believe all of that literally. So I want to introduce us today to two thinkers who um you may have heard the names before, you may have even studied them who have come before us with radical Jewish views of God, ideas about what it means that God is one, that fly in the face of the traditional view that God is the creator and the writer of, and the redeemer of the world, that God is a being who has a will, and who, and who teach ideas that God may be something a little different than that. Our first of our two speakers is Maimonides. I imagine this is a name that's familiar to many of you, right? Maimonides <clears throat> lives in the 12th century. He's born in either 1135 or 1138. We're not sure. He dies in 1204. So he lived like, a pretty good long life for those days. He was born in Spain, lived part of his life in North Africa, and ultimately died in Egypt. What does Maimonides do for a living? He's a physician. He's a rabbi. He's a philosopher. He's a legalist. He's the head of the community of um, the, the Cairo Jewish community. I've heard it said before that Maimonides is exactly who you want to bring home to your Jewish mother because he's both a doctor and a lawyer. Maimonides is one of these brilliant um, Renaissance men of history who does it all. He writes law and he also writes philosophy. And he also was a politician. He was the head of the Jewish community. I mean, he was an incredibly accomplished thinker. And by the way, he knew it. Maimonides has quite a high opinion of himself. If you read some of his texts, we won't really get into that today. But one of the things that Maimonides is, is a student of Aristotelian philosophy. He's a student of Greek philosophy, and he believes something that I think is really important to modern Jews, which is the idea that truth is truth. If you learn something from the world uh, through, say, science or philosophy, then that thing must be true. And that thing must also be true. It must, it must also comport with the ideas in the Torah. So when Maimonides reads the Torah, he believes that what he reads in the Torah must be in line with what philosophy teaches him which is, as somebody was talking about in the chat, that God is incorporeal, that God is um, the first cause, that God is not a being with any kind of physical existence um, at all. And when Maimonides goes to describe God, he starts with the idea of God's oneness, like Judaism. Let's, um, let's read a slightly convoluted philosophical text here, and we'll kind of work our way through it together. Maimonides starts with the, with the notion of what he calls attributes. What's an attribute? It's something about somebody. You know, I am tall. I'm not tall, by the way. If you were in the room with me, you'd know that. I am short. I am, you know, I have brown hair. I am smart. I am wise. I am kind. I am cruel. These are all attributes. You know, the tree outside is brown. These are all attributes that can be used to describe a thing. And Maimonides says that there are two kinds of attributes. An attribute can either be essential to the, the, the item or the object that it's describing, or the attribute can be extra. 
additional to the object that it's describing. So for example, what is an essential attribute of a human being? Well, Maimonides says, if I can find this right here, I'm just gonna, it's a little hard to see, but I'm gonna circle with my, um, with my cursor. Maimonides writes that man or humanity is a speaking animal, by which he means a, um, a living being that has cognitive capacity, that has consciousness. He doesn't mean speaking literally. Of course, we know some people can't speak. Um, he means that has consciousness. And Maimonides says those are the attributes that are essential to what it means to be a human. All other attributes are extra. Tall, short, fat, skinny, you know, kind, cruel, etc. Those are all extra. And he just says, so I'm going to read this passage now. He says, it is self, it is a self-evident truth, truth, that the attribute is not inherent in the object to which it is ascribed, but it is super added to its essence. And it is consequently an accident. When he says accident, he means something that's not essential, extra attribute that's not essential to the definition of the thing. If the attribute denoted the essence of the object, it would be either mere tautology, as if one would say man is man, or the explanation of a name, as is man is a speaking animal. So, for the word speaking animal indicate the true essence of man. So, he says, an attribute is either an accident or it is essential to the definition of the thing. Now, there are some people who think you can describe God with attributes, he says. What is the, let's use the chat feature for this, for this question. What would be some words, adjectives, attributes that you would use to describe God? I see present, ooh, elusive. This is a deep group. Merciful, all, great. I see more merciful, redeeming, judgmental, loving, eternal. Some of us might say uh, wise, good, slow to anger, creative, omniscient, omnipotent, right? Now, we're clearly all working with different definitions of God here. And I think some of us are talking about what we believe versus others who might be talking about sort of what Judaism traditionally teaches, right? So I see protective, I see creator. Okay, so these are all really good words that describe God according to different, different views of what God of what God might be. Maimonides says there's a problem, though. He says, one who merely rejects the appellation accidents in reference to the attributes of God, but insists on describing God as having attributes, does not thereby alter their character. For everything superadded to the essence of an object joins it without forming part of its essential properties, and that constitutes an accident. That was a lot of big words. And in other words, what Maimonides is saying here is that you cannot describe God as being something other than God. You can't describe God by any attribute word, because if you did, that thing would be essential to God's being, and it wouldn't be able to describe the rest of us because it would be what God is. Or that thing would be something separate than what God is, which would be a problem for God's oneness. Let me say this in plainer English with the help of Dr. Kenneth Seaskin. He says as follows. If we say John is tall, we are talking about two things, John and tallness. Now, if we apply the same analysis to God, an immediate problem develops. Consider God is wise. By analogy with John, it seems we are talking about two things, God and wisdom. Because wisdom, according to philosophy, is a thing that exists in the world, 
right? There is a thing called wisdom and we tap into it. We experience it or participate in it or come into contact with it. If God is one thing and wisdom another, then predicating wisdom on God would be introducing plurality where we do not want to find it. Because what does the Shema tell us? Adonai Echad, God is one. So as far as Maimonides is concerned, God's oneness means that God is wholly indivisible. God cannot be divided into parts in any form, not even by way of saying God is wise. That would be to divide God into something called wisdom, or to say that God is protective. That would be to divide God into something called protectiveness. He says any statement about God which implies complexity, either material or grammatical, contradicts Maimonides' claim that God is radically one. I'll just continue here at the bottom. There cannot be any belief in the unity of God except by admitting that God is one simple sus substance without any composition or plurality of elements, one from whatever side you view it and by whatever taste you ex test you examine it, not divisible into two parts in any way or by any cause, nor capable of any form of plurality, either objectively or subjectively, as will be proved in this treatise, and you're welcome to read the rest of the treatise. So what does Maimonides teach here? Maimonides begins with the idea that God is one, but he says that means God must be radically one. God cannot be divided into anything like being wise or being creative or being slow to anger. Because to say that God is any of those things would be to say that God is participating in the world as we know it. Those are things of the world. And that would be to diminish God. God can have nothing in common with the material world as we know it. And that means, according to Maimonides, that our words can't possibly describe God. So when Maimonides goes, oh, I love the question that was just asked in the, in the chat. So is he saying the Torah was wrong? Great question. So is Maimonides saying the Torah is wrong? No. Maimonides is saying the Torah doesn't say what you think it says or what you think it means. So I'll give you the best example and Maimonides, perhaps his favorite example. In the book of Exodus, there's a section where Moses asks to see God's face. And what does God say? You cannot see my face and live. You can only see my back, right? So then Moses sits in the, the cleft of the rock and God passes by and God see and Moses sees God's back. Now we, you know, modern thing, uh, you know, post-archaeological thinkers, we look at that and we say, oh, ancient people believed that gods had faces and backs. Ancient people believed that gods were corporeal. This is sort of leftover from a time when people thought of gods as being corporeal, not Maimonides. Maimonides says the Torah, that doesn't mean the Torah is wrong. It means the Torah doesn't mean what you think it means. When the Torah refers to seeing God's face, Maimonides says, that means knowing God's essence. When the Torah refers to seeing God's back, Maimonides says, that means referring to things that exist because God exists. The word achor means behind or after, which is to say things that come about as a result of God's existence. So when, my, when God says, you cannot see my face, you can only see my back, Maimonides says, that means you cannot know my true essence. You can only experience me through the things that come about as a result of my existence. So Maimonides has told us a little bit about what he believes there. He's told us that 
the Torah doesn't need to be taken literally. So I would change the language of Judy's comment here to say, it's not that Maimonides says the Torah is wrong. Maimonides says the Torah is not literal. And in that sense, he kind of, um, he kind of, um, of, of predicts liberal Judaism as it will come about later. Where people can read the Torah and say, oh, this is not literal truth. He also believes that people can never know God's essence, can only experience God through that which comes about as a result of God's existence. People around us, the world around us, the relationships that you have with others, that's where you can experience God, but you can't ever know God's essence, he says. So much so that you can't even use words to describe God. Remember we said before that God can't be described as wise? Well, Maimonides says the only way we can describe God is by saying what God is not. We can't say that God is wise. We can only say that God is not stupid. We can't say that God is good because good, I mean, good is a word that I use to describe myself or, you know, the the pizza that I had for lunch, it was good. How can I possibly put God on the same scale as the pizza that I had for lunch? God is not good. But what we can say about God, he says, is that God is not bad or not evil. So when we use our words to describe God, God is wise, God is good, Maimonides says what we're really doing is we're saying God is not evil, God is not stupid, God is not dead. That's what we mean when we say God is alive. And that ultimately the only way that we can describe God is by saying, using our puny human words to try to describe this mystery of a thing that we know is out there, Maimonides says, but that we can't possibly have anything in common with. So Maimonides' ultimate message here is that God's oneness implies that God has nothing in common with us or with anything in the world. God is radically outside of the world, and anything that we can do to describe it is only our human attempt to come into contact with something that exists because of God. This is a very distant very far away, very philosophical, as someone said before, God, but one that exists as far as Maimonides, or one that, a definition that exists as far as Maimonides is concerned, because God must be one, and that oneness um, leads to all the rest of this. So I see Lauren's hand, and then I'll show you another thinker who does something totally different with God's oneness. Go ahead, Lauren. Um, what language was he publishing in? <clears throat> The answer is, it depends on what you're reading. Um, the That was from the guide, what we just read, right? Mm -hmm. Maimonides, the guide of the perplex is written in Arabic because that's the language that Maimonides read philosophy in. He also writes um, in Hebrew some of the time. His, um, his legal works are written in Hebrew. But when Maimonides is reading and writing philosophy, even Greek philosophy, he's doing it in Arabic. Okay, thank you. And then would his language of like daily communication be Ladino or Spanish or... I think it would have been Arabic, but I'm not totally sure about that. And I don't know what language they would have spoken, uh, Jews would have spoken amongst themselves during that time. Okay, Sorry. Thank you. I see Carolyn. Go ahead, Carolyn. My question that I put into the chat was, how did the 13 attributes of God then get into the service? Great question. So uh, without going into too much detail, Maimonides is a bit of an enigma. Because sometimes he's writing what sounds like Greek philosophy for Jews, and sometimes he's writing halakha, that's very sort of what we call tachlis, daily, you know, um, 
and 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 the the thirteen attributes is actually closer to that. It's the Maimonides. We'll put it this way. There's a couple possibilities. One possibility is Maimonides didn't write the 13 attributes and some scholars believe that it was not written by him, that it was inserted into his work by others because it does disagree so profoundly with some of his philosophical work. The other possibility is, remember I said Maimonides has a high opinion of himself. He mostly believed that the common people weren't capable of understanding his philosophical ideas and they needed a, the common people needed a more sort of day-to-day tachless form of Judaism where you could just believe what you're supposed to believe and do what you're supposed to do. And the 13 attributes then is a form of Judaism for the masses. Maimonides would have then been able to explain each of those attributes in a philosophical way, but that for the most part, he believed that most people just needed that kind of Judaism. And I don't know which of those two is the answer to that question, and we may never know. So we have a thinker here who tells us that God's oneness means that God is radically outside the world, totally separate and has nothing in common with us whatsoever. Our second thinker completely disagrees with that. This is Baruch Spinoza or Benedict Spinoza as he's known toward the, um, toward the end of his life. <clears throat> Spinoza lives in, uh, in the 17th century. So, you know, about 400, 500 years after Maimonides. And he is one of these actually early enlightenment thinkers. Spinoza was a student of Descartes, and um, he was his, his ideas became really influential in what we call modernity, right? The Enlightenment ideas about individual rights and you know things like that. Spinoza was a Sephardic Jew. Actually, both of our thinkers today are Sephardic, but what made Spinoza different is that he and his, or that is to say, his family had most likely been among the forced converts to Christianity back during the Spanish Inquisition about a hundred and something years before his birth. So as you know, in the late 15th century, the, the Christians unified Spain and, um, and many Jews were either killed, expelled, or forcibly converted in what we call Gerush Sfarad, the Spanish expulsion. Uh, the community of which Spinoza was a part had been many forcibly converted to Christianity and many expelled, and they had found their way to Amsterdam, where they had lived as crypto-Jews for about a hundred years. And around the time that Spinoza is born, many of these Jews are realizing that it's safe to be Jewish again, and they're emerging from their crypto-Jewish life into a new Jewish life. But they're actually quite insecure about it, you can imagine, because they had not been Jewish in many ways for the last hundred years. And Spinoza was such a radical thinker that at a very early age, this highly insecure Amsterdam Sephardic community kicked him out of the community. He was excommunicated for the radical ideas that we're about to, te- to, to read about. By the way, Spinoza's radical ideas, a lot of them are ideas that a lot of us agree with, like God didn't write the Torah. For, so, you know, you couldn't say this out loud in the 17th century. If you did, it got you kicked out of the community. Um, But these days, what Spinoza taught is in many ways sort of central for those who are non-Orthodox Jews, especially. So Spinoza is one of the Enlightenment thinkers. And when he goes to do Judaism, he's doing things, things that are so radical that they get him kicked out of the community. In fact, Spinoza, for the most part, I think, did not think of himself as living a Jewish life. He only lived to be about 40-something. He died, actually, sadly, he was a lens grinder. And he died 
of um, a lung disease that he contracted from inhaling all that lens dust over the course of a 20 year career as a lens grinder. So he died very young and he died quite lonely because in those days you couldn't just go be a secular person, right? He's not Jewish. He's not Christian. He had some correspondence with some people, but um, he lived, he lived quite a solitary life and died, um, you know, and died young in, in as part of his solitary life. So Spinoza believes where Maimonides said that God is totally outside the world, Spinoza believes the opposite. Spinoza is trying to solve the same problem as Maimonides, which is the problem that God and these attributes um, can't, well, I'll, tell, I'll show you in just a minute, actually. Let's take a look at what Spinoza does with God's oneness. Spinoza defines God as something that is radically one. He says, by God, I mean an absolutely infinite being. Why does Spinoza's God have to be infinite? Because Spinoza's God is one. There's only one God, which means that if, that if God is one, then there can't be anything outside of that God. That would mean to divide God. That would mean to limit God. So Spinoza's God must therefore be infinite. But if Spinoza's God is infinite, what does that mean about everything else that exists? It means that everything else that exists must be part of that. Is also God. Exactly. Is also God. So by God, he says, I mean an absolutely infinite being that is a substance consisting of infinite attributes, each of which expresses eternal and infinite essence. So everything about God has some kind of an eternal and infinite essence. This is because God is totally echad. God is totally one. Therefore, God must encompass everything in the world. Also, he says, there's something out there called substance. By substance, he says, I mean that which is in itself and conceived through itself. That is that the conception of which does not require the conception of another thing from which it has to be formed. By the way, the reason that Spinoza is writing in what he calls geometric language, he's writing in, you know, like definitions and propositions and thing, things like that. That's because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to convince you with the power of his writing, with his rhetoric. He wants to convince you with mathematical certainty that he is right. You can decide whether you agree or not, but that's what he's trying to do here. So Spinoza says there is something called substance and a substance is something that exists in itself. That is to say, that is not the result of anything else existing. So think about it this way. What is the cause of your being? The cause of your being is your parents, right? And the cause of their being is their parents. And theirs is their, you know, and you know, so we all have multiple causes, right? Why am I standing here today? Well, there's a whole, a whole range of reasons why I'm standing here versus over there. Why I live here and you live there. Everything we are and everything we do is the result of causes. And those causes were caused by things and those causes were caused by things going all the way back to something that is not caused by anything. What is there in the universe that is not caused by anything? What could there possibly be that is not the cause, that is not caused by anything, that is totally just free of causes? Spinoza says there's only one thing that is, that is the cause of itself. And that thing is everything, the universe. 
the world as it exists today is the only thing out there that is the cause of itself. Because everything else that exists within the universe is caused by the universe. So he's defined God as the absolute infinite being. And he's divine substance as the totality of the universe, that which is not caused by itself, which means that those two things must be the same. So for Maimonides, sorry, for Spinoza, um, God's oneness, God's indivisibility, means that God must, by definition, be encompass everything that is. So where Maimonides said God is radically outside of the universe, Spinoza says God is radically inside the universe. God is the universe. God is you. God is me. God is, you know, my, my watch and this book and love. Love is part of God. Wisdom is part of, is part of God. Every, the tree outside, my dog, everything that is, is a part of God. And a part, Spinoza calls a mode. A mode means an affection of substance, that which is in something else and conceived through something else. So what you are as a, a human being, you are a, to use mathematical language, a mode of substance, which is another way of saying you are part of God. You are part of this larger whole. Think about all the ways that he's right. Think about all the ways that we are connected to a part or a, to a larger whole, that we actually don't exist as discrete individual beings. I know we think of ourselves as being discrete individuals, and in some ways we are, but truly the cells that make you up are made from stuff that was part of other stuff, right? You were born from the earth. You were born from your parent. Uh, you were made of, you know, of, of DNA and... Um, and matter that came from them. And ultimately the matter that's part of you will become part of something else as well. The tree outside, where does the tree end and the dirt begin? Well, it's not so simple, right? Because matter is constantly moving from the dirt into the tree and into the animals and, and all around. In other words, what we are actually is not quite as discrete and separate as we thought we are. We are part of a larger whole. Um, and that's even true at a subatomic level, right? We're learning from, from physics just all the ways that this is true, that we are made up of the universe. We are a part of this larger whole, and we exist as, as discrete individuals much less than we think we exist as discrete individuals. So ultimately for Spinoza, God's oneness must by definition be an expression of God's wholeness. And God's wholeness must by definition include all of us. I'm not gonna read these propositions because he's essentially saying in mathematical and geometric language, the same thing that we're saying here. But I will just read proposition number 15, which is this. Whatever is, is in God and nothing can be or be conceived without God. So in other words, everything that you ever come into contact with is not from God. It's not created by God. It's not, you know, it's not that God loves you. You are a part of God. God is the whole, the totality of everything that is, including all of us. Now, there's a couple of implications of this, actually, on my next slide. 
what are the implications of this? Um, that God is not what you thought God was, Spinoza says. If God is the totality of everything that is, then God doesn't have a will. God is not a being. God is not someone who created the world and wrote the Torah. God is not even the spirit behind the Torah or the world or something like that. God is simply the totality of everything that is. So one of the criticisms that gets hurled at Spinoza some of the time is, if God is everything, doesn't that actually mean that God is nothing? If God is not more than the sum of all the parts, then is there any one thing out there that you can point to and say, that is God? And for Spinoza, the answer is actually no, right? Which makes this in some ways maybe not great religion because there's no God to pray to here. This is not a God who hears your prayers. By the way, Maimonides' God doesn't hear your prayers either because Maimonides' God doesn't hear because hearing is something that we do and it describes the world as opposed to something that God is, which is totally radically outside. But Spinoza's God, there is no God to hear your prayers because God is simply the totality of everything that is. There is no God to part the Red Sea. God doesn't have a will. What's the expression of God's will? The laws of nature. The laws of gravity and mathematics and science. That's how you learn about God, Spinoza says, by studying the world, by learning more and more about how the world works. You learn more about God, who is the world. As Melissa put in the chat, we are made of star stuff. That's a um, from, from Carl Sagan, right? So on the one hand, this is a God that we all get to be part of, the extraordinary notion that we are part of the divine. And on the other hand, this is a God that's radically different from the God in the prayer book, because this is a God who doesn't hear your prayers or choose the Jewish people or write the Torah. This is a God that you come to know by learning about the world around you. So we start with the idea that God is one, and we come up with two really radical different ideas. On the one hand, Maimonides says that God is radically outside the world. God can't possibly participate in any notions of the world. And when we try to describe God that way, all we're doing is diminishing God. So God is mysterious. God is, in a sense, totally outside of our ability to fathom or really describe. And on the other hand, Spinoza takes this idea and says, no, God is radically inside the world. God is the world. God is connected with and a part of everything that you are. In fact, you and everything you see are a part of God. If you want to know God, all you have to do is look at yourself. All you have to do is learn about yourself and about the world around you, and you can come into contact with the divine in that way. So here I want to pause, because I see we have about 15 minutes left, and I want to ask you a question, and then I'm happy to open it up for your questions. And the question I want to ask you is, which of these two notions of God resonates with you? Which of these two speaks to you and your beliefs and your conception maybe of what God and what the and what the universe is? And I'm happy for you to put it in the chat if you want, but if you'd like to raise your hand and share with us your reactions um, in terms of which of these two speak, uh, thinkers is speaking to you, I would love to have your ideas now. Uh, I see Bunny's hand, go ahead, Bunny. Maimonides' idea that God is radically outside the world um, 
my concept of God is is a, a creator who that created everything, the universe and us and everything in the world. Um, but I also believe that kind of like Spinoza when 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 he says God is the world that in a way um, just because of certain life experiences uh, I feel that God is amoral um, that God contains both the Yetzer HaTov and the Yetzer Hara you know the good inclination and the evil inclination and that uh if we if we consider both of these viewpoints and in both of them you're saying that or they are saying that god doesn't hear our prayers um then what's the point of praying and i think i guess the point is my feeling about prayer is that it's a way of kind of connecting with this creative energy in the universe connecting myself with the creative energy and drawing strength from that. Um, but um, I, I don't believe that God is always good because there's too much evil in the world. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, Spinoza would agree with you, right? Spinoza would essentially say, if we're going to take the good from God, we have to take the bad as well. If God is the totality of everything that is, then the evil is actually also part of God. That's a challenging notion, I think, for a lot of us. But um, it is, you know, there's something to be said for that. Other thoughts. I, I understand that making you pick a side is totally unfair. I'm doing that for the sake of the conversation here, but I'm curious what's resonating with you. I see Thea. Go ahead, Thea. Okay, I have a question um, to help me clarify. Sure. Is Maimonides say that by giving God attributes by trying to describe god you are denying god's oneness yes essentially maimonides is saying that okay so think about this think about the idea in 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 greek philosophy which remember maimonides is, a, is you know is a, a student of greek philosophy there's this idea of ideas platonic ideas so plato believes that everything that exists in our world also exists in a higher plane. Um, so, you know, the reason that you can, you or I can identify a tree is because it exists, it participates in something called, you know, treeness, which is a bad language, you know, a bad um, description of it, that exists on a higher plane. That, you know, there is something called tree, sort of a perfect form of tree. There's a perfect form of human being. There's a perfect form of love. And we are participating in those things. But those are things. So they are things that exist as part of the universe. So to say that God, well, as, as we read before, that God is good means that God is participating in something called goodness, which, as far as he's concerned, means to divide God out, which means that good is something that can describe us. We live in this world. God, he says, is totally radically one. <clears throat> and therefore can't live in this world, can't participate in this world at all, which doesn't mean God is bad because bad is another one of our words that describes something we are, right? It means that we can't actually describe God. God, I mean, it, my, what's, what's, one of the things that's central to Maimonides is mystery. 
right? So he doesn't come along and say, God's not this, here's what God is. He actually comes along and says, God's not this, and you can't really understand what God is, other than knowing that God is something totally radically other than what you are. Does that kind of help? That helps, but but one, one more thing. So my understanding or my interpretation of, of what you've presented so beautifully today is that neither one of them would allow us how there's anything that is not God. Say that again. Neither one of them would allow. That there is anything that is not God. Mm. That's true for Spinoza. Maimonides would say, no, that everything around you is not God. God is not in the world. God is not in the tree. You know, the tree exists because of God, but in a sort of a first cause sense that, you know, God caused something that caused something that caused something that eventually led to the tree. But that doesn't mean that the, the, the tree is God. Spinoza would okay. say, no, the tree is God. God is okay. in the Got it. Now, my answer to your question is I'm leaning towards Spinoza. <laughs> <laughs> because of the notion of God being part of everything? Yeah, because I can't I can't fathom the concept that there is anything not God. And much like Bunny was talking about, as much as I hate to say it, even the evil in the world is not not God. I can see that. Thank you. Thank you for that. I see Jack. Thinking about these two diametrically opposite things, a little difficult to sort out your question. But a synopsis for me would be, I cannot, I, I find um, Maimonides' view paradoxical with existence, whereas I find Spinoza's view totally consistent with existence and feel much more comfortable with the notion to the extent there's divine that's embodied in, in the beauty of the world and the, the sheer genius of what the, constitutes the universe. Hmm. Thank you. That's a beautiful way of putting it. I um, appreciate that a lot. I want to I ask, there were several people who put in the chat the word both. You know, when I when I asked you my unfair question to pick one or the other, you said both. I wonder if anybody's willing to share with us what what do you mean by both? What are the aspects of the of the thinking of these two thinkers that are that are resonating with you in, uh, separately? I really believe that both are true, and that as humans, we simply do not have the brain power, the understanding to know what God is, to fully understand God. And interacting with creation is the best way that we can work towards understanding. Um, and that's, I don't like that's, that's the best option that we have for understanding, if that makes sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense. And it reflects Spinoza's idea that God is present in everything, which I think really resonates with a lot of modern people. You know, we're searching for spirituality in our connection to this world, to this universe. And it also reflects Maimonides' idea that you can't really know God's essence, but what you can do is to experience God through the things that come about as a result of, as a result of God's existence, right? So you look around and you see all these things, you know, we're in awe of this world. And when we, when we are in awe, we are, we are called, our souls, I think, are called to something religious, and I'm using the word religious here very, very loosely, 
because I think mm -hmm. someone like Spinoza might have said to you, what's the point of praying? Don't bother praying. Maimonides, by the way, is still a religious Jew. Spinoza, not at all. But I think it's very possible to hold a theology like what he's describing and to care about religion and worship. Somebody asked in the chat, it's actually a direct message to me, that says, how does all this relate to religious worship as we know it, in, in your opinion, which I guess is in my opinion? And the answer to that is I think this is a reminder to us that to be religious isn't necessarily to believe in things that we don't believe in. That is to say that, that some of the purposes of prayer include connecting with others, connecting with our best selves, finding God inside of us, right? So if I don't believe that God will hear my prayers and act on them, which by the way, I don't, despite the title rabbi in front of my name, that doesn't mean for me that it's not worth praying because praying can still be an act of coming into connection with God in whatever way I conceive God. Um, and so I think, you know, Spinoza, sadly, Spinoza did not live in a world where you could become a liberal Jew or even, you know, th these are I think these are ideas that have made their way into orthodoxy as well. But we live in a world where we can think about prayer as meaning things other than God hearing our words and enacting things. Right. So we can believe in what Spinoza says or what Maimonides says here and still believe that prayer is a very important um part of of religious life if it speaks to us i see a hand up is margot go ahead margot part of the reason i said both is because i visualize god as being the chief creator of everything and having an organized plan and not radical things that don't make any sense happening even the creation if you're talking in human language, a day represents a period of time. But it also could be a day in a centuries of thousands of years long as an age. The, the human ability to communicate is limited, but that doesn't mean that the order of creation where the order of God's doings is wrong. It, mm. it's, the six days are right, backed by science, saying how much, uh, you know, what happened in what order. And it's just that the, in, I have friends that claim they're not religious, but they'll still say, well, yes, there's something there that created an organized world so we knew what to be doing if we did this we know what kind of thing would happen to us yeah i mean and one of the issues you raise which is a good one is the issue of uh, as well of not needing to read the torah literally which maimonides teaches us right that it doesn't have to mean literally what it says it could mean something that's true for you philosophically um, at, philosophically as well. And uh, let's see, we have two minutes left. I just want to quickly address what Thea just said. And then, um, Judy, you'll get the last word. Um, Thea asks in the chat, based on what you just said about prayer, would you say that prayer is more about us than it is about God? I would suggest, and I'm not here to, you know, necessarily preach theology, but I would suggest that it, it allows us to redefine the meaning of 
prayer and the meaning and what and what God is. In other words, I don't think it's more about us. I think it allows us to connect with God in a variety of ways. And by the way, I think that is also an idea that's very present in Judaism. Just this morning, I was studying with my Chavruta, um, a Hasidic text in which this Rebbe, the, the Darche Noam, who's the current Slonema Rebbe, teaches that the purpose of prayer is to help you rise to the heights of the universe and see the world from God's eye view. Now, that's very different than praising God or asking God for things, right? That's a notion of coming into contact with, and that's actually consistent with what both Spinoza and Maimonides teach. So I don't think it's that it's about us more than it's about God. I think it gives us an expanded view of what it is to connect with God. Judy, you get the last word. I, I don't feel that I have to um, affix myself to a single viewpoint that's going to last my whole life. I think that I need to be fluid enough of mind to play around with each of these as I continue to grow Jewishly. It seems to me that to call oneself an atheist or to call oneself, you know, whatever, you sometimes you are that way and other times you need to be open to applying new knowledge and, and new experiences to these very fascinating philosophers. Love that. Thank you. I mean, after all, we are Yisrael, right? We are the the ones who wrestle with God, which means that we're supposed to be continually wrestling with this stuff. And, you know, I think these two thinkers that we've been looking at, they give us two different possible ways of thinking about what God is or how we might connect with God. But there are lots of others. And I'll just draw my attention to actually Judy's last comment in the chat where she asks, what does Martin Buber think about all this? And that just gives us another opportunity to think there are lots of other ways to think about God, right? The, the rabbis say that Torah has 70 faces, and I would suggest that it has far more than that, because each of us brings what who, who we are to our understanding of Torah and of what God is, and we're constantly changing, which means that what you think today might be different from what you thought last year, and what you think a few years from now will be different, because we bring our experiences to our beliefs. So I want to thank you Clearly, we didn't solve all the problems of the universe here, but um, but I think we had a good start. I appreciate the discussion. I appreciate your openness to this challenging text, um, and thanks for inviting me to be part of this um, of this discussion today. Thank you so much. For Thank, you, Thank, you. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. That was wonderful. Pleasure. It was a pleasure to learn with you and thank you all for joining us. Uh, just quickly want to let everyone know our next class will be uh, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. We'll be learning about the corruption of Jewish power with Rabbi Avidan Friedman. So we hope you can all tune in to that as well. Um, and thank you again for joining. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.